0: Good morning.
1: Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away.
0: Passport, check. Factor 50, check. Swimsuit, check. Liquid separated laptops at the ready. Chucks away, it has been too long. Or maybe not, because after last weekend's shenanigans, 1,400 people missing their flights, you might be forgiven for being a little stressed out about the whole thing. Now, so far, things are looking better, but all week long, the pressure was on Dublin Airport Authority to explain just what in tarnation had happened and how were they going to fix it. CEO Dalton Phillips got a grilling before an Arakthas committee on Wednesday, and then he spoke to Cormac for a cooking all the way through.
1: Uh,
2: four hours, but you couldn't give passengers this weekend a guarantee that they won't face the same chaos. Why not? It's a very difficult situation, Cormac. Um, air travel
3: is coming back at a rate of knots that nobody had anticipated. Um, we had a very difficult Sunday. I am, um, you know, deeply embarrassed for what happened, um, and I apologise unreservedly to all passengers impacted, and obviously to all our staff who were impacted
2: by that. Um, May but actually just, just has to, just been this had, weekend. You, you say it's complex and it's difficult and challenging, but. In a way, you know the amount of passengers that will come to the airport. Do you have enough security staff to check them in? So that is that is the issue, which is um, traffic
3: has come back at such a rate of knots. We are now back at essentially 2019 uh, sorry, levels.
2: Sorry. We don't have an awful lot of time. So we can do without the, the vast cons- contextualization. Do you have enough security staff this weekend or not? We will... I'm confident that we can get through this weekend, Cormac. Um, I am
3: confident. We've done a lot of work. The team are really leaning in. But the reality is we're about 167 security officers short of where we would normally be. Um, And what I mean by that is that we should really have about 700 security officers. That's what we'll have at the end of June. Today, we're at about 535. And so... The gap in that is being filled by uh, support from Cork, support um, from our task force, so people who um, work in the offices who are able to support in different areas. But it's really tight and airports right across Europe are facing the same struggle. We've tried to bring
0: people... And Cormac, end of the interview with this final question.
2: It's terrible management decisions. Is it true that there are 13 executives are earning over €250,000 in DAA? So we are a global
3: um, organisation and we recruit um, globally. Is and we need it to true? attract. Yes, of course it's true.
2: How many people are earning over €100,000 in DA, senior executives? Uh, I don't have the number, but it would be, I'd say, north of 100 anyway. Do you think, you're leaving DA, aren't you, um, in September? If you weren't, do you think you'd be considering your position? So I'm
3: I'm deeply sorry for what happened. Um I'm doing the best of my ability with my team, in very challenging circumstances, Cormac, to turn something around Would that Would you be considering lost your position 200. if you
2: weren't leaving in September?
3: No, I wouldn't be. Why not? Because I am working with a, a, a good team that's doing a really difficult job and these things happen and the, the mark of leadership is if you can identify what happened and try and fix it. But this is a very difficult circumstance that all aviation right across Europe is facing. The easy decision, Cormac, is just cut 20% of capacity. And I can come on your program and say, yeah, I can guarantee everybody can get through in 30 minutes. That's not the right decision. And the public don't want that.
0: The public, you say, sir? Take it away, Sarah
4: lots and lots of texts in on this one person says I'm going on Saturday with my sandwiches some good Netflix and a load of patience well (laughs) you certainly need a load of patience I love Dublin airport says that person I hope it gets sorted well I hope you still love Dublin airport after Saturday John from Cork says we need more flights from regional airports no one wants to travel to Dublin to catch a flight but no doubt like a lot of things here it's political well I think it always has been another person says simple solution for the airport is an algorithm that's linked to boarding passes not allowing you to enter security until the recommended time says Declan in Wexford and Declan, I don't know now about algorithms when we're Wednesday and we're talking about trying to fix something for Friday, but uh, thank you very much for the text. And uh, another person then says, back to the management, says, beyond belief, listening to the DAA chief, I have no confidence in the management. We're going on holidays on Monday and instead of looking forward to it, we're dreading it. We're sickened listening to this. Mm. What are the government doing? Asked that person. Another person says, I'm a farmer. Would I get a job herding people into the holding pen at the airport this weekend? I'll bring my two sheep dogs. We'll get back to you on that.
0: Ah, the holding pens, since rebranded we Welfare Zones and in fairness a place of last resort needs must. But the whole concept was not finding favour with callers to LiveLine. No sorry, Bob, here's Francis.
1: At the holding pens, it doesn't look like they're going to be there this weekend but um, they will be there soon with toilets and um, seats. Yeah, what that's, do you think? That, that's hilarious. I've never
5: heard the likes of my life. Plenty. Oh, depends. Now, I'm, I'm traveling with a group, um, Joe, out to North, um, late June. Now, there's over 100 people. Some of them are coming up from the country as well. Okay. Can you imagine asking elderly and frail people to stand in a tent? Do you know what I mean? What the, the next step they'd be saying, here, bring your sleeping bag with you. I know, I know. You know, what? Be raids going on up at the airport now?
1: But you don't want. you Anyway. They're 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 at 95 percent capacity. They the CEO has just said they expected to, they did not expect to be back at this level for another two years. No, that's
5: that's mad. 2024. 2024. That's, yeah, but well, I mean that just went with the pandemic. Nobody knew what was going on. Right am only talking about
0: Yeah, yeah. I understand.
5: Standing, standing a holding pen. I think I get rings for me now. What do you think, Joe? I could you <laughs> pull me by a rope into the airport?
0: <laughs> good woman, Francis. But the callers piled up a disgrace, national embarrassment. Simply not good enough. And then, this call.
1: Michael O'Driscoll, Michael, your point, please. The holding pen idea.
0: Uh, I felt like in Cork, right? Mm.
5: Uh, thankfully, there was minimum plus there, right? Okay. certainly a holding pen. It's terrible, you know.
1: And where are you I mean, now, Michael? Only one th-
5: it, there's only once th- I'm in Spain there, Joe. What? I'm sitting on the beach here in Spain, Joe.
1: <laughs> How will you get off the air? Are
5: you, are, you, are, you, are you trying
1: to upset us all?
5: No, 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 I'm just making the point, right, that trying to change the actual flight <laughs> at this stage, right, is going to be incredibly difficult and make things worse for everybody else.
0: Oh, Michael, 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 this could go either way. But you are tuning into Liveline on your holidays. So luckily for you, loyalty is rewarded.
1: Describe the beach to me.
5: Uh, the sun is shining, Joe. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> lots of people around.
1: Yeah.
5: Nice and relaxed, yeah. sitting under the umbrella to keep the uh, yeah. keep the sunshine off
1: here. What What would you be wearing at the minute, Michael? Do you mind me asking? Just
5: my shorts. My uh, my, my shorts. My sh- uh, yes, 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 they're not speedos
1: now. They are shorts. No,
5: no, Joe. I'm 68 years of so well, age. still long. A Have
1: you been in the sea today?
5: <laughs> oh, absolutely, Joe. I'm about 15 meters. From I just came out about well, 10 what, minutes
1: ago. Well, Michael, would you mind? Can Can you stand up now, from me? <laughs> but, and can you walk to the? Can you walk to the water's edge for me, please?
5: I can't Just describe.
1: To... Just describe the scene as you to all of us in rainy Ireland at the minute. Gridlocked, hey, landlocked.
5: You, you have people ringing on us I, "I just i I'm retired, so I'm attached to it." <laughs> and what's, okay? the, can,
1: what's the sensation of the sound on your bare feet?
5: Slightly burning, Joe.
1: Okay, that's annoying me even more. <laughs> and you need the water's edge now.
5: I am. I'm just about two or three metres
1: from the Joe, and oh, I'm looking at the big yacht
5: outside. Key Oh, the big nice.
1: yachts. And will you step into the water for me, just to cool your hot feet? Okay,
5: Joe, I'm just about to step into it now. Yeah, don't go no, too Joe, far. It, no, no, Joe, it's slightly warm now, so that's a good um, thing, you
1: know. Now, it, I, want it, you to, I want you to turn around 360 okay. degrees and describe the scene as you look in from the Mediterranean.
5: I'm looking out now and there are jet skis out there in front of me. And there are yeah. a few lots of people swimming, maybe 50. Looking back in the beach, many umbrellas. And just back I see my wife sitting down there. So. Uh,
1: and is there, is there beach bars? and?
5: There is, and there are people over there having their little uh, sangria. Yeah, absolutely. And there's the octob over to the left. So you can hire jet skis, etc. cetera, et cetera. And is there
1: people eating sard- sardines and white baits at little fish?
5: When they're teaching an I don't want to go over and ask them what they're actually teaching, right? So it will be a little embarrassing, you
1: know. Okay, okay.
5: <laughs>
0: um. Shameless. Joe that is. Meanwhile, at nine o'clock. Good morning everyone and welcome to
1: the Ryan Turberty Isn't here show. Yes, it's Oliver Callan here again, and I'm thrill skinny to be here. Until 10 o'clock.
0: And on Monday he spoke to Ty Coakley whose book The Game A Journey into the Heart of Sport gets right into the sweat, snot and tears of all the beautiful games.
1: Tell me about your own emotion around sport and where that well comes from and why y- you feel emotional about
6: sport. Well, it has to do a lot with family, I think. I had a great experience with my father when I was 18. I was part of a Cork minor team and we won in all Ireland. And when we brought the cup home back to Cork and the train station... I could see my father bursting through the crowd, and he kissed me. And it's my only memory of uh, my father kissing me. I'm sure he kissed me when I was a child, but I don't remember that. Yeah. And you know, the, the emotion in, in, in I can remember it as if it happened yesterday. Wow. And uh, you know, my father died in 1998, and I still hold that kiss very, very wow. close. And a lot of people would have experiences like that, as in memories like that, as well. So and the, that's tied up with sport.
7: Yeah. So those
1: kind that kind of masculinity. Uh, that didn't really allow any hugs and kisses
6: it would emerge in sport it does there's a famous uh, photo of uh, a, a Limerick hurling supporter in 2018 when Limerick won the All-Ireland for the first time in 40 years mm. 45 and he, I think he, he, he was burst he just burst into tears at the end of the game <laughs> uh, like he couldn't control it and You know, the emotion was too much for him. And his two sons are with him. They're about eight or ten or something. And the interesting thing is, he said afterwards, it was the first time they they ever saw him cry. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, he's clutching them in the photo. It's a great photo. But the interesting thing is that he burst into tears, Adults cry when we win and children cry when they lose. And of course he's, he's thinking of kind of people he lost who weren't there and yes. all this kind of emotion comes out in the moment and the great thing is that children don't have that grief in their lives so they, 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 they're happy when uh, but men cry or adults cry when, when they win.
0: But despite or maybe because of its popularity, Tyke feels that perhaps sports doesn't always get its due.
6: There's snobbery everywhere, you know. A lot of people who write about sports especially feel it's a little bit looked down by uh, so-called intellectuals and everything. I have never really experienced that. I think, you know, just some people are not interested about sport and they don't get it in the way that other people don't get music or they don't get kind of high literature. But yeah. there definitely is snobbery there. Yeah. But, but, but sport is by far the most popular thing in our culture.
0: But sticking with the snobbery theme, have a listen to this hierarchy.
6: People are involved in hurling, they look down on Gaelic football. Yeah, uh, other yeah. people look down on soccer as a kind of working class or a rough game. Or people uh, look down on rugby for various reasons. And, you know, everyone looks down on golf.
0: Cover your ears, Greg Allen. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Now to your corners, chaps, metric versus imperial. And with Prime Minister Boris Johnson's mutterings to bring back decent British measurements. And with that, perhaps, empire, or maybe just confusion.
8: Control over units of weight and measure, historically has been really deeply tied to ideas of political sovereignty. And I think this is where Johnson, unknowingly or not, um, is is really tapping into something because it feels like when you're losing control of this thing, it feels like you're losing control in a way, of your sense of reality.
0: So this is a post-Brexit, make Britain great again message?
8: Oh yeah, this is uh, nostalgia. This is blue passports all over again. This is, I mean, you, you know, you look at the the polls of uh, the UK populace and, uh, you know, if you were born, if you're under 70, you were taught using metric units in school, basically. And for the younger generations, it's just natural to think in metric. So this is something that's very much appealing to the Conservative base.
0: That's the voice of James Vincent, whose book is called Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement. And it's fascinating. And he knows more than most about how seemingly neutral calculations can be channelled to all kinds of ends.
8: And the big case that happened in 2000, 2001 was this uh, this sort of court case called the Metric Martyrs, which was about a group of market traders who were selling fruit and veg, and they refused to sell them using both metric and imperial units. And this is sort of important because it's not that they were banned from using imperial It's that they had to offer both of them in order to be part of rules that, you know, the UK had embraced since uh, joining the EEC. Uh, They get taken to court. There's about five of them. And along come people like Nigel Farage and lots of UKIP politicians. And they thought, well, we can make hay out of this. And they did. They turned it into this huge national debate. And it it really took what had been an abstract question about the UK's membership of the EU and turned it into something very tangible. Yeah. Because... Farage could suddenly point to the EU and go look what these bureaucrats are making us do they're making us change our ancient ways even though the UK had started metricating long before it had been a, a regulation within the EU and the EEC and even though the EU eventually said to the UK you can keep these measurements. We have had enough of this argument. It's a headache and we really don't care. So the, the UK got, as it often did within the EU, a bit of a special status where it could use both metric units and imperial units. But for people like Faraj, it was just this great story that they could tell about how you know the ordinary woman and man in the street could no longer buy a pound of bananas and it was all the fault of these bureaucrats.
0: Maybe so, but it was actually the French who gave us certain measurements. I was fascinated to see that you saw the original metre and kilo in a
9: vault in Paris. Is that right?
8: Yeah, that was uh, fantastic. Again, units of measurement can seem abstract, but you have to remember that people had to invent them. People had to make them and they had to define what they were. And so the original meter and the kilogram, they were created during the French Revolution by France's intellectual elites. And they were not just meant to be uh, a way of sort of sorting out the mess of measures that France had in the ancien regime, but they were meant to be a way of sort of reshaping the ordinary citizen of France and turning them into a good revolutionary uh, man or woman.
0: And something similar had been planned for the calendar, but it never quite took off. And when you hear the sums involved, you'll know why. How come um,
9: metrication worked for weights and for distances, but not for the calendar? So we stuck to the seven day week rather (laughs) than a 10 day week.
8: Yeah, so metrication or rather decimalization, uh, which is, you know, div- dividing things into base 10. And and the metric system is decimal, uh, but decimalization can be applied in different uh, domains, as it was in revolutionary France with the invention of the French Republican calendar. And this was designed sort of like the metric system to shape citizens. And so they wanted to get rid of the influence of religion on uh, on French society. So the calendar at the time was very much orientated around, you know, the church going Sunday and the religious festivals and saints days and the revolutionaries who obviously uh, were not fans of the Catholic Church, decided that they wanted to get rid of this influence. So they created a new calendar, which had these new Republican holidays, which were celebrated to sort of proficiency, and the virtues of being, you know, a, a good upstanding uh, French Republican citizen. These lasted for a little bit, but it became a little bit too much trouble. As the revolution became more heated, shall we say, they decided to do more changes. So they, they decimalized time, for example, and they changed the 24-hour hour day into a 10 hour day with each hour containing a 100 minutes and each minute containing a 100 seconds and this was such a radical change because it actually meant that not only did you change the clock but you actually had to change the length of the second so the, the <laughs> second... my
0: head is spinning <laughs> it's, well it
8: was for the french citizens as well and ah. they that this was too much bother
0: Spinning is right. That sounds very complicated. That was James Vincent with Claire. So, after all that, a little bit of rest for the ears. So very beautiful, Benjamin Britten, with a nod to this week's South Wind Blows. Yesterday marked 100 days since the start of the war in Ukraine. Russian troops are advancing in the eastern Donbass region, but in other parts of the country, life goes on. Porrick O'Brien is a reporter for Channel 4 News and he spoke to Claire on Tuesday.
10: That's the very odd thing about this war. You know, you can be in Kyiv as we were two weeks ago. You can be in Dnipro as we were last week. And apart from sort of sandbags and and a curfew, day-to-day life is continuing. Um, And and it's it's a difficult thing to sort of get your head around. And I think that's actually... Lots of particularly soldiers have spoken to us about a sort of psychological disconnect in Ukraine. People in Kyiv... Are not feeling the war in the same way as people on these frontline villages is, and I think politically that's, a, that, that, that's something that Zelensky is quite is quite aware of. Do you know what I mean? That mm-hmm. that, that there's been lots of talk recently about you know wh- what is an acceptable level of concession, what territory down here mm-hmm. can you cede in order to placate the Russians if that's your policy? But people down here that does not go down well that kind of language.
0: But fighting in the Donbass region is fierce, with many, many casualties.
10: Remember, Donbass is made of two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. About over 90% of Luhansk is now in Russian hands and about half of Donetsk. In terms of the human cost of this particular conflict on this particular front line, you mentioned that town, um, Severodonetsk. Latest estimates put the number of civilian deaths just in that battle at about 1,500 people. Conservative estimates in terms of the amount of troops on both the Ukrainian and Russian sides, the amount of troops who have died, it's running at about 250 soldiers a day being killed in this conflict. A a week or two ago, President Zelensky of Ukraine described the Battle of Donbass as like Hell, And the Ukrainian foreign minister described it as one of the largest and most, and most ruthless battles on European soil since World War II.
0: And on Tuesday, EU agreement on a sixth round of sanctions, a partial ban on Russian oil with the aim of cutting off funding to the Kremlin's war machine. But in doing so, we too will be affected.
3: One is looking at a different era now in terms of pricing around fossil fuels. The war has really exacerbated this um, and created huge pressure. Um, And there's no doubt in my mind that part of Putin's strategy was to create an energy crisis uh, and also then to create a food crisis.
0: So this may hurt, but will it have the desired outcome? Minister of State for European Affairs Thomas Byrne attended those negotiations and joined Cormac on drive time.
11: We've got to keep our eye on the prize here, which is to make sure that we can put as much pressure on Russia as possible. But that's how much why we're pressure here. is this putting on Russia at all? Well, I think, look, I think the only thing Russia has going for them is what's coming out of the ground. And oil is a big part of that.
2: But I mean, um, no, OK, so okay that's, that's that's a great war phrase. But can we quantify true, that? Can we quantify Sorry, because this is hurting an awful lot of people here, too. And you know that I know because the has spoken about it. and yeah, He's yeah. warning people very upfront. He's saying there will be a, a consequent increase in energy prices. Now, you don't need me to tell you that people are struggling to pay bills already. So if p- people want to be reassured that this is really hurting the Kremlin. Yeah. So quantify it.
11: Well, I'm not, going, I'm not going to quantify it because nobody can predict the markets and predictions have been way off in the past.
2: But for this to be worth it for Irish people who will have to choose between heating and eating, uh, this com- uh, coming this autumn or and winter, that's the choice that an awful lot of people are making, and they will want you to quantify the pain that this is putting on Putin and Russia. They will want you to quantify the, that because they want well, to be the, sure the, the, that it's worth it for them.
11: What, what, what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is that the the, the main part of the Russian economy is what comes out of the ground. So this has a direct impact on what's driving their economy. Also today, what was sanctioned as well as their, their their main bank, the last of the Russian main banks was sanctioned today. That's gonna to have a devastating effect on the Russian economy. And we have to do this because there's a country which has been terrorized by Russia at the moment. And if we let them away with that here, they would be coming after other
0: countries. And this week also saw the US pledging advanced artillery and, in particular, medium-range rocket systems, with Ukraine promising the Pentagon it wouldn't fire the new rockets into Russian territory. The Kremlin accused the US of pouring fuel on the fire. On Thursday's news at one, William Almberg, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, spoke to Brian.
3: You mentioned the fact that the indications are that Washington believes this war will be prolonged. What what might be the United States' war aims in this, if I can use that term, in supporting Ukraine?
11: I think it's I think it's complex because, you know, there have been some people who've said, including the Secretary of Defense, that the purpose is for Russia to see that a war like this is absolutely not winnable. It's not in their interest to deter them from fighting a war against their neighbors like this again. Um, I think that's probably the best aim we could have. But it's been misinterpreted to say that, you know, we want to permanently degrade Russian power. I mean, Russia as a state is always going to be able to come back from this. But honestly, the hope is that they learn the lesson that invading their neighbours is a terrible idea.
0: That would be the hope. But will lessons actually be learned? And if so, at what cost to the people of Ukraine? Guardian journalist Luke Harding spoke to Sarah on Drive Time. Depending on which analyst
4: you talk to, Luke, some people are saying that Russia has has got the upper hand now in this war. Others pointing out that while Russia is taking more territory, it's taking them an awful long time and they're making very slow progress in taking that territory. And and at the same time, Ukraine is taking back territory in other areas of the country where Russia doesn't have their forces concentrated. Um, What's your sense of it on the ground as to to the trajectory of this war? And also, how is morale amongst the, uh, the Ukrainian troops?
12: I think this is going to be a long, uh, bitter, nasty, attritional, positional war. But it, it depends on whether you look at this war as a kind of war for territory, which obviously, to a large extent, it is, or, or a war for, for for Ukraine as a as a sovereign country. And you know, I, I've been I've spent many months here. I've been here pretty continuously since December of last last year, but you know, before the invasion and afterwards. And what's clear to me is that Russia has lost Ukraine irrevocably that there is no way back, that Ukraine will be antagonistic towards Russia for, for generations. Too many people have died, too many civilians have been, have been killed and also the country has been kind of consolidated. I mean, and, and morale is high. I talked to a lot of people in Mikhailov who say that they're proud to be Ukrainian, that they're mm-hmm. proud of their army, they're proud to volunteer.
0: 100 days and counting. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Sometimes you have to feel for the Darcy.
13: I, I don't know if I want to do this actually <laughs> I
9: I'll tell you what it feels I, like and see if you agree with okay. me. if right. you ever rub Velcro along your hand now that's the feeling
13: it doesn't bite no nope. uh, I've had I've had tarantulas and everything on my, on my hand before and uh, uh, I didn't mind but this thing <laughs>
7: <laughs>
0: the things you'll do for the radio the creature in question a giant African millipede and for Collienus, a source of endless fascination
9: She's about six, seven inches long. Yeah, and about eight, I'd say. Yeah, Yeah. and has uh, 254 legs, 56 legs, sorry. Uh, So
13: millipede is a misnomer then?
9: Yeah, it's just a, a general term for... A load of legs. (laughs) It's very scientific, you know. But um, they're an African species from Kenya, from East Africa, um, all around that area. And when you see them in the wild out there, it's a lot more natural looking. Because everything's bigger. Everything's bigger down there. The Uh, leaves are bigger, trees, are. everything's bigger. Everything and and, and all the bugs are a lot bigger because down near the equator, as you get closer to the equator, bugs tend to just be... uh, uh, more rotund and more well fed, and it's warmer for them, and they love all that, so that's why they get so big. Okay, very, very funny story about these it, millipedes in general produce toxins on their skins to help to protect them from predators. But there are a species of black lemur in Madagascar right. that actually bite them and get those toxins flown and use them as insecticides, so the mosquitoes won't bite the uh. So what are they, so these lemurs bite into one yeah. of these centipedes, kill them? Rub, no, no, keep them alive. Rub them all over their skin, their body right? and then the insects don't tend to get ah. in their fur. So it's very clever and they also bite them a little bit more and lick them and get a little bit high and hang around the trees. <laughs> so, so they use so them. So the next thing you're going to ask me to do is bite into it <laughs> and, and the two of not. I <laughs> know,
0: <laughs> ah, no. but if he thinks he has it bad at the national broadcaster, Think about where he came from.
13: Like I remember on Today FM, yeah. we got a number of snails and put them on my face. It's really good for your skin.
0: Is that what they told you? But according to meditation teacher Connor Creighton, who was in with Ray earlier in the week, all of this could have been avoided with a little bit more self-love. Just say no. Way though, a little bit cynical.
13: It's, it's not the norm. It's well, It's rare.
0: Um, like
13: if if we did if we did you know Joe Duffy does these polls like if we did a poll right now and asked our listeners how many people love themselves yeah. I I I'd say that you're you're probably you know ninety five percent would say they they don't they they don't love themselves I may I think I'm they, they wrong. would
14: and I think they would say that because it feels uncomfortable to say it but I think if you begin to look at your life. This loving yourself functions in a sort of sense of degrees. Like, I'm sure there's moments, right, in the day when you do beautiful things for yourself.
13: (laughs) Right? Right? Well, I I, I really love my breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. And
14: and that's an act of love for yourself. Right. right? Or I'm sure there's every so often where, like, you get asked to do things. You're like, I'm exhausted. And you say no. Right. That, and that's, again, like an act of love, love yourself. for yourself. Okay. So I think the, the idea of kind of we do love ourselves, but the language behind it feels a little strange. OK.
0: And Connor has written a book called The Truth About Love, in which he debunks, amongst other things, the idea of the one.
13: Our soulmate. <laughs> but you sort of rubbish that in a way that you are the one. You, yeah. As in you yourself are the one.
14: Do yeah. do all that? Yeah. I mean, it's like that uh, expression, you know, you are the one you've been waiting for. Right. And so if you imagine we grow up with a certain split inside of us, we grow up with a little disconnection. That's the whole reason we're so drawn to love. Like I kind of, I out myself as a love addict, but I think we all are to a certain extent. Like we all go around with a bit of longing. That longing... I believe is to heal this split inside ourselves, to come back to a place of fully accepting ourselves. We might try and find that in other people, but it's it's not sustainable. And um, I feel the more sustainable way to to be in relationship is to is to concentrate on yourself, to mm. heal the rift within yourself, to learn how to fully accept and allow yourself and then to meet somebody else. And then in that situation, when you do meet that other person, you're not trying to kind of consume them. You know, you're not, they're not providing a function for you. It's just a mutual celebration. Two people coming together and celebrating how much they love each other and how much self-love they have.
0: Go give yourself a hug, people. Oliver, meanwhile, getting into lighthouses. Here he is with Gerald Butler, third generation lighthouse keeper, who gave us this description of one of his favourite lighthouses and its engineering is simply remarkable.
7: Fasten it, it rises from sea level. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's built on the hardest part of the rock which is uh, almost at water level and from there it rises up 163 feet to the light. Mm -hmm. The shape of the tower is um, skirt line effect so it broadens uh, way out on the bottom tapers as it rises and there's a flare out just underneath the balcony. And that flare out is to uh, dump the sea as quickly as possible from the lantern. Mm -hmm. There are two balconies on it. Uh, The upper balcony has a flare out underneath it as well. And these flares, of course, the Irish lights learned to put them in from when they had the steel tower on both Fastnet and Calf Rock. Uh, It was just a plate of steel sticking out and the steel was just ripped off it with the sea rushing up over it. Because when was Fastnet built? It was built, it was completed in 1904 and the stones uh, in the Fastnet are all dovetailed into each other, into the one above and into the one beneath. Amazing. And um, it's a virtual one stone structure so when uh, a wave hits it, at most it's just going to tighten the stones. A stone from the middle cannot be removed. Uh, Cornish granite is what was used that was the only place they could get granite that was so fine grained and free of any blemish. You couldn't afford to have uh, even a dark line in the stone itself because that could signify a weakness that would uh, result in the tower collapsing. Absolutely incredible
0: And as Butler told us you will need every bit of that precision engineering when a storm hits Have a listen to this
7: The waves out at sea might be about 40 feet. And when they come into the shallower ground, uh, there's a reef uh, or something about a half a mile west of the rock. And at that point, the waves would uh, sometimes nearly double in height. So they would gain speed as they're coming towards the lighthouse. And the top would be blown down off them. And then they would hit the rock with so much force and so much um, vigour. Um, They will compress pockets of air uh, around the base of the rock. And of course, as the wave moves in on the top dead centre, it explodes the air. And this explosion, uh, if you were inside in the tower, it is just like a bomb going off. Wow. That gives the, the remainder of the wave the heel that it needs to drive thousands up on top of thousands more tonnes of water up over the top of the lighthouse. So when you're inside in the lighthouse, you feel the air compressing inside in the tower because all this is happening so rapidly fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll know the water is rushing up over the lighthouse. You'll feel the tower uh, vibrating and swaying. Uh, It is said that it can go three feet off centre now. um, (laughs) Okay. So the the lighthouse is actually swaying. Like a leaf? Yeah. (laughs)
0: A queasy just thinking about it. Nerves of steel you would need. That was Gerald Butler with Oliver. It is 100 years since the publication of Ulysses. Do not touch that dial. Because it was James Joyce's two poetry collections that were the focus for the poetry programme this week. And for Gerard Smith, who joined Olivia, these poems spoke to Joyce's own love of music.
1: They have beautiful rhythm and cadence. Um, the lines are short. And the very fact that he very emphatically set out to write a suite of songs. He said this on several occasions and he refers to them not as poems, but as songs. And that's probably why he got away with it to some extent. Not that everyone liked the language. They saw it as being somewhat saccharine. I've seen the word saccharine used, sentimentalist in in certainly in content. And yet Yeats um, thought they had great emotional power.
0: Well, nothing very saccharine about their treatment here. Kicking it off, here's Mercury Rev.
1: This heart that flutters near my heart, my hope and all my riches is. Unhappy when we draw apart and happy between kiss and kiss. My hope and all my riches, yes. And all my happiness, To my astonishment, also, an American, raucous American rock band called Sonic
6: Youth.
10: He would have liked
1: that.
2: He
7: would certainly have
0: liked that. Did not see that coming. Raucous indeed. And no stranger to a bit of raucous, Jarvis Cocker, but riddled he is not.
12: I'm a I'm a bit concerned about you in the sense that um, I I think a lot of people are trying to move on from COVID and everything. But w- 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 when you were on the line earlier, you were sanitizing your hands. I noticed, <laughs> and it struck me that maybe have you become quite neurotic about COVID, are or you, are you find
15: having difficulty in moving on? I'm not really, to be honest. Um. But I suppose the thing is like, um, I still haven't had it. I mean, that's the thing that I can't Ah, believe. So like my partner's had it. Uh, Most people I know have had it, but for some reason, like for instance, you know, like we went and did a tour just before Christmas. I thought I'm bound to get it now. We played Butlins. We played Butlins, (laughs) (laughs) honestly, we did. Butlins, Bogner Regis, you know, the the pinnacle of my life performance career. Um, we played a f- festival there in January, like the height of Omicron. I thought, you know, he was indoors, <laughs> it had low ceiling. I just thought, this is it. How do you avoid getting it? Just hadn't got it,
12: right?
15: And you, and you were always a
12: kind of a poorly kind of person, weren't you? You'd be the kind of person to get colds and flus and that kind of
15: thing. I have been, but I'm I'm and it's nice of you to point it out, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've, I've I'm a bit more sturdy now.
0: I think you'll find he's filling out that velvet suit quite nicely. Thank you, Brendan. Now, the pulp frontman was on the line because he's written his memoir, Good Pop, Bad Pop. But as you might expect, it is not, like the man himself, predictable.
15: There was a house in London that I used to live in, and I stored a lot of stuff in the loft of this house. Then I moved away from London, came back about 20 years later. In, In between times, I've been thinking, you know, one day I'll get round to clearing that place out. Finally, I got to clearing it out and what I decided, which I'm glad about now, because this is what the book is based on, is that instead of just chucking it all in a skip, I decided to look at every object, take photos, try and remember why they were there. And as time went on, I I, I realised that it was telling me a story which turned out to be my own life story.
0: And what a life story, because pulp were massive, headlining Glastonbury in 1995. Always the plan.
12: You had written down at the age of, what, 15, Jarvis? Your your master plan for world domination with a band called Pulp.
15: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, as I say, that was one of the things that convinced me that it was worth going through the stuff in the loft, you know, and sifting through it because there could be other things like that because I'd forgotten about this book. I mean, it obviously had meant something to me at the time because, like, for a start, my handwriting is legible. And and I'd done proper joined up writing, so I obviously was thinking this is important. I have to I have to take time over this, and um, yeah, basically it was me kind of doing a, a kind of what nowadays you would call positive visualization of, of my <laughs> yes. future career as a, as a pop star. So I thought you know the group's going to get uh, well. It's weirdly if it starts with a guide to what the what the group is going to wear. There's this guide to the pulp wardrobe where. All the members of the band are going to wear duffel coats and CNA crew neck jumpers. We would be so hot on stage just with that, those two items of clothing there. You would be kind of dying after one song if you went on stage with a duffel coat on. So, And then I'd move on to this master plan of we're going to get famous. Then when we're famous, we're going to set up our own record company and release records by other... Artists freeing them from the grip of the major record companies and then we'll have our own radio station and, and, yeah, basically, you know, become Steve Jobs or something.
0: Now, that did not quite work out the way he had hoped. So, if he was looking back at his 15-year-old self, what would be the verdict?
12: How was it then when the dream came true? Like, how would you say you got on in, in
15: subverting the music business and subverting pop music? I think... Ideas that you have when you're really young, they tend to go into your mind and and you're kind of not aware of them because they've, you've, they've been there for so long. So I think this idea that I saw in some ways pop success as some kind of Trojan horse where you could kind of sneak in some, you know, some kind of subversion or whatever. Uh, I think it stuck with me and, and I always felt that if it ever happened, it wasn't about how many uh chateaus i could buy in in france and how many sports cars i could have it was more about what you could do to kind of shake things up and make it you know try and open the door for other people in some way so when i saw that written down in an exercise book from but you know written by my 15 year old self i was touched by it i thought you know it, it's an it's kind of like a noble ambition in some way. And 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 maybe I did try and put it into mm. practice, not entirely successfully, but you know, we've all got to have a go, haven't we?
0: Ah, lovely Jarvis. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. I'm not here for the next two Saturdays, but back after that, and let's finish with this. Oh, and in case you're wondering, the mystery woman, Saint Martin's, Brendan did ask. He can't remember.
15: She can't. She had a thirst for knowledge. She studied sculpture at
11: St Martin's College. That's where I.